Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Well, I'm being a little bit self-indulgent today because I'm going to read the opening sequence from a novel I wrote some years ago called The Burning Blue. And this is the opening section. North Africa, July 1942. A little after four that afternoon, Joss Lambert left his tent and strode towards his plane in a line of others on the far side of the landing ground. He was 22, unshaven, with blonde hair which had thickened with dirt and sand. The last time he'd looked in a mirror, he'd noticed a new line that ran from the side of his nose to his mouth. No longer such a baby face. It was hot again, really hot, but very still and quiet, so that the only sound was of his boots crunching across the desert grit. He was conscious of very little going on around him. For weeks now, he'd felt an increasing detachment from the job in hand. In part, this was deliberate, a necessary means of dealing with the desperateness of his situation. His life was more bearable if he did not think too much about what it was he was doing. Then perhaps one day, one day, he might be allowed to return home to her. But now, well, now there was nothing. He'd read her letter a dozen times, but it was as though his brain had simply shut down, refused to absorb the meaning of those words. Instead, he had become numb, unable to think about anything other than the task ahead a German land wrecker unit to bomb and strafe. More enemy to kill. Sweat glistened on his temples and ran like a spider down his back. He brought his upper lip to his sleeve and looked at the wet imprint of a moustache out loud. He brought his upper lip to his sleeve and looked at the wet imprint of a moustache outlined on the material. Bradshaw, his rigger, was giving the windscreen and canopy a final clean as Joss grabbed the parachute off the plane's wing. Feet first, then arms through the canvas straps, and all brought together into the single fastener. He paused, ran his tongue around his gums, and then spat, as he always did in a vain attempt to rid his mouth of sand before flight. He'd been the first to reach his plane, ten battered Curtis Kitty Hawks, all gently baking in the sun. The metal was too hot to touch, so hot they'd once fried corned beef on one of the wings. Joss put on his gloves, then hoisted himself onto the wing and onto the cockpit, his parachute pack thumping against the back of his legs. The other pilots were reaching their planes. Pryor, the squadron leader, walked around his, touching it, examining the underside of the wings and rudder. Everyone had their own routines. This is as clean as I'm going to get her, said Bradshaw, leaning back to give the perspect one last inspection. He glanced up at Joss. You all right, sir? Joss looked up, forced a fleeting smile. Well, she's all ready for you, said Bradshaw and slid off the wing. Out in the open, there was something about the vastness of the desert that muffled the occasional clang or shout. But in the narrow space of the plain, the quietness was close and contained, even with the hood pushed right back. Sounds were amplified and tinny, so that he was conscious of his breaths, of the squeak of pedals being pushed up and down, and the strapping of his flying helmet, sounds that emphasised the routine of the pre-flight checks. Without meaning to, his gloved hand felt for the letter in his shirt pocket and as it did so, his mind flooded with the crushing weight of despair. Stella, he thought, how could you do this? 
He lifted his arm to rub the sweat off his forehead and saw his hand was shaking. When the ground crew gave him the signal, he began to manipulate the hand pumps and starter buttons. The air screw began to turn, silently at first, then chugging, until the exhaust stubs vomited blue flame and black smoke, and the whole airframe began to shudder and clank as the Allison engine erupted into life. Moments later, the other nine planes joined him, a deafening roar tearing apart the quiet. Pulling the hood close, he lowered his goggles. Christ, it was hot. Even his arms and legs were glistening now. Come on, come on. Any longer, and both he and the plane would be dead from overheating. He felt in his pocket, then realised he'd left his tiny wooden lion behind. Damn. Still, it was too late to worry about it now. Put it out of mind, he told himself. Put everything out of mind. At last, Pryor at Red 1 moved off, followed by Reds 2 and 3. A new, low whining began. Then it was his turn, at Blue 1, to open the throttle and start trundling into position. Swaves of sand and dust whipped the airframe. It was bad enough taxiing with an enormous engine cowling for a view, but with the man-made sandstorm, it was like night flying without the lights. A further complication, and there always was one, was the way the Kitty Hawk tended to veer to the right. He had developed a method of taking a compass bearing and hoping for the best, but with everything juddering, including his legs on the rudder pedals and the arrows on the dials, it wasn't easy. And on the ground there was always time to worry, like the fact that his plane was full to bursting with high-octane fuel and a 500-pound bomb. Sand and grit battered the perspex. So much for Bradshaw's cleaning efforts. Opening the throttle further, he felt the plane surge forward. A sudden jolt as a wheel went over a large stone and the stick bolted in his hand momentarily, knocking his elbow against the side of the cockpit and numbing his arm. He cursed and corrected the yaw of the plane. The rattling and noise increased with the speed, until with a sigh of relief from both the pilot and the machine, Joss pulled back, the stick biting and firming up, his grip tightening as though controlling a strong dog on a lead. The shaking stopped as he and his plane, strapped together, emerged into the big, wide blue. From sand cloud to glaring brightness, he thought, squinting through the goggles at the sun that was now gleaming off the perspex of the machine in front. He glanced behind him, back at their airfield. One of the planes was still on the ground, its propeller slowing. That song, Blue Skies. She'd always sung it wrong, wrong words, wrong tune half the time too. The target was a wadi, some forty miles south of Mersa Matrue and the coast, full of tanks and other vehicles, and more importantly ammunition, fuel dumps and several hundred men. These dried riverbeds were hard to spot from the otherwise flat desert floor, but from the air offered rich pickings, as Pryor had cheerfully pointed out. But no one had been fooled by his bravado. Such a base would be dense with anti-aircraft flak and machine guns. It was a basic equation. The richer the pickings, the smaller the chances of making it back. They crossed down into the Katara Depression, the huge escarpment marking its northern edge clearly visible. Then headed west, 80 miles behind enemy lines before looping up north so they could attack low, fast and out of the sun. Surprise was the key. They had to pray no one saw them before they dropped height into the bomb run. At 20 miles from the target, Pryor brought the squadron into line astern. An old RAF attack formation, but then again, Pryor was a Cranwell man. Joss had tried suggesting they attack in lines of three astern, but had fallen on deaf ears. Doesn't give us enough room for manoeuvre, Pryor had told him, and makes us a bigger target. And that had been that. This was fine on a single run, but when there were two circuits to be made, the bombing, then the strafe, the odds were shortened even further for those at the end of the line. 
As they approached the wadi, Joss lifted his goggles onto his forehead. They were low enough now for him to see a burnt-out bomber, crumpled and alone among the sand and stone away to his left. With his thumb, he flicked off the gun safety catch. He'd been on the receiving end of such attacks on many occasions. From the ground, the attacker seemed to hold all the advantages, but this was of little comfort. Strapped into the tiny cockpit, so narrow his elbows brushed the sides and his head the canopy roof, he wondered how he ever made it through. A deep breath, the target rushing towards him. Lines of orange and green tracer were already crisscrossing the sky in front of him, despite the advantage of surprise and coming out of the sun. Arcing lazily at first, they accelerated as they flashed past his plane. Josh pushed the stick over, hard right, then left, half rolling his plane from side to side, stomach lurching as the blue horizon swivelled. On the ground, men fell flat at the roar of nine Allison engines belting past so low. He corrected himself, dropped his bomb and, not waiting to see where it had hit, sped on through the encampment. Explosion after explosion thundered behind him, and one massive fireball pitched orange flames and black smoke like a geezer into the sky. Someone had scored well. Tracer followed him out into the desert as he circled, black puffs of smoke filling the sky, ahead, below and to the side. They were way off, but it wouldn't be long now. He glanced round. They'd all made it through the first run, but then that was the easy bit. Now for the strafing. No surprise any more, and the guns would be ready. The puffs of smoke intensified, and the plane jolted. Closer now. Joss gripped the stick tighter, breath quickening. Another crash. The plane shuddered again, and tiny shards of shrapnel showered the airframe. Jesus, that was close. He saw Pryor turning in for his second run, followed by Reds 2 and 3. Then his turn. One, he counted. The camp looked a mess, thick oily smoke belching into the sky, but there was no let-up from the flak batteries. More splinters rained across the airframe. Two, lines of tracer looking as though they would hit him square between the eyes, but somehow hurrying past and over. The stick jolted and shook with the plane. Joss gripped it with both hands, sweat poured down his cheeks and back. Three, over three hundred miles an hour into a sky raining bullets and debris and pieces of jagged metal, finger on the firing button. Four, more men down below, leaping face first onto the ground as his bullets sprayed across them. Five, another massive explosion, not flak, not a bomb, but one of their kitty hawks disintegrating in the mid-air. The planes ahead disappeared into a cloud of smoke, then Red Three emerged again, a spectral silhouette hardly real at all. Six, he whipped on through the burning gust. The tracer still pursued him, flashing doggedly over his canopy as he rolled once more, before running out of steam and dropping away. Six seconds, that was all it took, and then he was away, blind through the smoke wall at fifty feet, and then racing over the desert. The whole attack completed in just over one minute. Joss started to gulp deep breaths of air, realising he'd stopped breathing again as he'd counted through the strafing run. Looking behind, the puffs of flak and tracer disappeared into the distance, until all he could see was the smoke cloud caused by their sixty seconds of destruction. Spared again. Pryor led them back up to 10,000 feet before breaking radio silence. Two pilots killed, one blown up, the other by ploughing straight into the ground, causing as much damage as any 500-pounder. Most of the others had taken some kind of punishment, although no one else was injured, and the planes were still flying, still keeping up with the CO. Well done, everyone, said Pryor, but keep a sharp lookout. We're not out of the woods yet. Predictable, routine words. Sixteen months before, when Joss had first arrived in the desert, He'd been surprised to find his shoulders bleeding after his first sortie. The combination of sand and wearing only a thin shirt rather than a thick jacket or ermine 
had caused the straps to chafe as he kept turning his head to scan the sky. His skin had hardened since. He'd also lined both his parachute and the cockpit straps with padding, but even this minor irritation had made him realise there were a number of differences between flying over home and the desert. Another was the lack of cloud cover. Flying over England, they'd curse when there was little cloud. In North Africa, there simply were no clouds, just a vast burning blue, with only the sun's glare for cover. Goggles lowered once more, he continued to search the wide desert sky, although his mind had begun to drift. He could do that, fly and keep a lookout without really concentrating. He'd often thought it was a bit like driving a car. He might indicate, overtake or change down a gear, but without being conscious of it, thoughts on something else entirely. But now the dull, nauseous sensation in his stomach had returned. No, he thought, this can't be happening. Not now. Not after all this. It can't, it can't, he said out loud. There had been a time when he'd believed Tommy that war promised honour, excitement and fellowship. But this place, this fucking awful desert, with its freezing nights and scorching days, its sand and its millions of flies and fleas, has soon put pay to that. But he'd persevered, borne it because there'd been a hope of a future worth having. A future with her. Stella had made it all bearable. Only Stella. Bob Carter at Red 3 was wavering up and down before him, damaged somewhere. Rudder or aileron, maybe. Further ahead was Pryor with Brian Scott flying at his side. Christ, but what a bunch they'd become. Sun-bruised faces, uncombed, bony, barely a decent uniform between them. Joss had begun by trying to keep himself presentable, but on a canteen of water a day it was impossible. He'd rather have a glug of water on his return from a sortie than enough to wash properly. They were all exhausted. They smelled, too, of sweat mixed with oil and grease, although it was only when someone came back from leave that anyone noticed. The little round pills the medical officer sometimes issued helped keep them going, but they were no substitute for leave, and leaving Cairo was no substitute for going home. No wonder lines were appearing on his face. He looked down, wide, flat and unrelenting, a sprawling, sandy grey desert which disappeared at the horizon into a strip of haze that merged with the sky. He was unable to make out details, without woods or snaking river valleys. It all looked the same to him, a barren, lifeless plain that meant nothing, no towns or villages, just sand and rock, a hellish landscape. The churning throb of the engine had become a neutral background that had evolved into a heavy kind of silence. He could no longer understand why he was still alive. Why was someone playing such a cruel trick on him? He was, he supposed, an above-average fighter pilot, with an above-average combat record, but even the greatest aces usually came down eventually. Manon, Richtofen, Ball, Mulders, Wick, even Barder and Tuck were in POW camps now. The chances of his surviving over two years of almost continual active service, bar three months instructing in the Sudanese desert, were virtually nil. But he'd always been lucky. It had been something of a joke. Strange coincidences, or flukes of nature, had followed him from England to North Africa. He'd been shot down three times, crash-landed more often than he could count on one hand, been bomb-strafed and nearly died of all things from an infection just a few weeks after arriving in the desert. Yet here he still was. (music) 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. There had been another fortunate escape the previous evening. After dinner, Dennis Carr had asked him for a game of cards. At first, Joss refused, but Dennis was persistent. What are we playing for? Cigarettes, said Dennis. They'd all been running low, and getting quite irritable about it too. But Calloway, the adjutant, had told Joss they were expecting a supply plane the following morning, with plenty more cigarettes on board. Clearly, Dennis didn't know. Not money? No, just fags. More valuable at the moment. Joss relented. In the desert, there was so much that chipped away at the nerves. Joss had soon realised... In the desert, where so much chipped away at the nerves, Joss had soon realised that it was ever more important that everyone got on. After all, there was no escape, no pub, and even the beer had usually gone off by the time it reached their mess tent. Any arguments tended to be short-lived affairs. One might see two pilots at each other's throats one night, but exchanging jokes the following morning. And he did like most of them well enough. He was just not as close to them as he had been to the squadron in the old days. He had learnt his lesson the hard way. Only a week before, Laurie Collins had gone missing. The previous day, Joss and Dennis had finally packed up his things. Dennis had never said anything about it. It wasn't done. But he and Laurie had been close. They all needed distractions, and Joss, who had only recently started smoking, could afford to lose a few smokes. It was dark and already freezing, so they had sat in Dennis's tent with thick jumpers and overcoats on. Clutching their cards, Joss blowing into his cupped hands. He'd already lost three cigarettes when they heard faintly the whir of engines. Jesus fucking Christ, said Dennis. Sneaky bastards. In no time at all, only the time to pause, look at each other, then realise it was Italian Mackie 202s, they heard the first crack of machine gun fire and immediately dived into Dennis's slit trench of a bunk. The Italian planes were gone as quickly as they'd arrived. But when Joss checked his tent, 
he found a neat line of bullet holes that crossed one side to the other. Inside, the fold-away table at which he wrote his letters was cut in two, and his sleeping bag still smoking. Dennis had followed, and at the time Joss had turned to him and thanked him for bullying him into playing poker, and God for watching him over again. Dennis hadn't returned that afternoon. His was the kitty hawk that blew up. The supply plane, a Whitley, had brought more cigarettes. You knew, Dennis had said that morning, and he'd whacked his cap against Joss's arm. Dennis, small, wiry, his almost black hair sticking up on end and grinning a gap-toothed smile, now scattered across that German camp. What a sham! And the letter had arrived on the same plane. Some of the pilots were sent books and magazines, which were then passed around. Out-of-date newspapers and copies of Crusader, the Eight Army magazine, were also delivered regularly. And although most of the articles tended to be little more than morale-boosting pep talks, it was at least something new to read. The mail had been one of the first things to be brought out from the plane. Calloway had riffled through the assorted post, reading out names and waiting for them to be snatched from his hand. Joss had recognised the handwriting immediately, but only once he was in his tent, out of sight from anyone else, did he tear open the seal. Alversden Farm, 28th of April, 1942. Dear Joss, I don't know how to say this to you, but Philip Mornay has asked me to marry him and I've accepted. I'm so sorry, but I cannot go on like this, worrying about you constantly, not knowing whether you are alive or dead. It's eating me away. I thought I was stronger, thought I would somehow be able to cope, but I can't. Are you still the same, Joss? Or someone very different? I don't know where you are or what you're doing. I can see your face, but I can barely remember the sound of your voice, except that I loved it. I always felt we would be punished, that there would be a price to pay. To expect you to come back to me is tempting fate too much. I can't help feeling that if I wait any longer, God will snatch you from me. That sounds stupid, I'm sure, but I feel it. I've dreamt it countless times. If I release us both, then perhaps we have a chance. I don't expect you to understand, but hope that one day you might forgive me. I will always love you and those precious months we had together. Stella. Oh, Stella, no. He'd stayed there, reading and rereading it, his body frozen with shock. An hour later, he was called back to the mess for the mission briefing. Then he'd gone to his plane. In the past, he'd believed he'd been spared because of her, that the losses they'd suffered and the torment of being parted for so long were nothing more than tests that had to be endured and which would make their ultimate reward more wondrous. He thought about some of the pilots who'd come and gone. Some had had wives and children back home. Others adoring parents who sent regular packages, lovingly wrapped. A few had showed the promise of doing something brilliant in later life. All dead, but he, with only Stella, had survived. Had endured the scraping, abrasive sand, getting everywhere, wearing away the skin of his joints, chafing his feet, working its way into every orifice, scratching his eyes. He'd helped clear the base after the Kamzine had crept upon them, bringing with it a vindictive, swirling sandstorm that covered everything, choking engines and half-burying the camp, sandpapering their planes to death. Christ, but what was the point of this torture if not for her? What was the point of being constantly persecuted by the hordes of flies that made their lives a misery? And he even had two in his cockpit now, buzzing around, then settling on his back or bare knee. He tried opening the canopy, but they insisted on remaining. Desert flies were different, nothing like the house flies Joss knew back home. 
The desert fly was smaller, but hardier and more aggressive, attracted by sweat to exposed flesh. Especially irritating was when they buzzed around an ear or swarmed at mealtimes. Eating became a skilled art, done one-handed, the other saved to brush away the hordes. Even so, it was still impossible to complete a meal without a sizable portion of desert fly. Laurie Collins once spent a morning trapping flies in an old tin, which he then doused with petrol and lit. Everyone enjoyed this brief moment of revenge until they were overwhelmed by the powerful yet familiar stench. With horror, they realised that the flies must have been feeding on rotten flesh. Burnt, rotten human flesh. There were some who could not eat for several days after. But not Joss. He had a reason to keep going. Another irony. By some glitch, the letter had taken three months to reach him. Twelve weeks passing between ship and aeroplane, crossing oceans and continents, denying the truth. He wondered whether she had read the letters he'd sent in the meantime. Letters of love. Letters of hope. Urgent shouting cut across the air, and out of nowhere bullets and tracers jabbed across his wings. Joss's time for brooding was over. Pryor had warned them to be vigilant, but that hadn't prevented them from being bounced again, and out of the sun again. Germans this time, in Messerschmitt 109s. Without thinking, Josh pushed the stick forward, diving then turning in towards the enemy, the horizon rising and rolling before him. His insides churned and an invisible weight thrust him back against his seat, but the tracer was already curving wide behind him. There wasn't much he could say in favour of the Kitty Hawk. It had a slow rate of climb, slower even than a Karakan, and none of the visibility of a Spitfire, nor could the shark teeth painted onto the underside of the engine cowling have been very intimidating, but at least it could outdive and outturn a 109. The firing stopped, and Joss glanced back to see that his pursuer had broken off. He turned round to find another 109 heading straight for him, guns spitting bullets and cannon shells. Shit, where had he come from? A loud crack and his mirror disappeared. Another, and the plane juddered, screaming in his ears, a pilot burning. Frank? Hard to tell. One man's scream sounded much the same as another's, but his plane kept going, hurtling towards the 109. Joss tensed, closed his eyes. He opened them again as the 109 flashed its underbelly just feet above him, vulnerable and silvery as a trout, a brief moment before exploding, tearing in half like paper. The blast jolted the stick from Joss's hand and knocked his head against the side of the canopy. A wing cartwheeled through the air, the black cross spinning. The engine and half the fuselage fell in flames. Debris fluttered in every direction, and as Joss turned, he saw blood streaked across the outside of his canopy. He retched. For those few seconds, he had thought they were going to collide. The pedals kicked his feet, the rudder. He looked round quickly and saw nothing. Then another Messerschmitt lurching into view, more sparkling tracer. Something whipped across his right arm, searing, and Joss thrust the stick forward again and dived. The needle on his oil gauge was rising and the whole airframe juddered. He clenched his teeth, both hands gripping the stick. The engine whined, screeching in his ears. Then, for a second, maybe two, his vision dimmed on the point of blackout. Only when he was sure the tracer had stopped following him did he pull back the control column down to 1,000 feet. My arm, Jesus! Blood was spreading in a widening stain across his shirt sleeve and dripped from his elbow. He yelled out loud. In unison, the engine coughed, spluttered, then stopped. Silence, apart from a gentle whistling. The propellers slowly wound down to a halt. One of them chopped in half. He was gliding alone. Four of the nine, himself included, would not be making it back today. Almost half the flight... A bad day by anyone's standards. Blood drained from his head as his energy ebbed. His teeth began to chatter. Flames were flickering around the engine cowling and wafts of smoke streaming over the wings. 
Joss wondered whether he should try and turn the plane and jump out, but he was already almost too low to bail. If he stuck with it, they might just smash into the ground, and that would be it, over, once and for all. He realised he didn't mind. In fact, he rather welcomed it. Another part of his brain took over, ordering his hands and feet to try and control the plane so that it drifted downwards in a gentle trajectory. The undercarriage was trapped, but everything else seemed to work. The ailerons, flaps and even the rudder. The eventual landing was almost graceful. Initial contact with the desert floor jolted him enough to wind him, and he gasped with the terrible scraping of metal and stone. But after a short while, the machine ran out of steam and ground, creaking to a halt. The flames were growing. In seconds they were scorching his legs and singeing his bare arms. He thought of the screams, screams he'd heard countless times before. He never ever wanted to suffer that kind of pain. His right arm had numbed, but from somewhere deep within him, a primeval desire for survival urged him out of the cockpit. Sliding off the wing, he staggered thirty yards and collapsed. Joss lay on the desert, spread-eagled, dipping in and out of consciousness. The smell this time not of other men's burnt flesh, but his own, was rich and cloying, and this time he vomited. He clutched his right arm and heard himself cry out, his hand covered in blood, his forearms red and white, blistering and swollen. Such a mess. He dropped his head back onto the ground, the sun bearing down on his closed eyelids, creating a luminous kind of orange glow. They were advised not to wear shorts or rolled-up sleeves, Clothing was another layer of protection against fire, but the advisors weren't the ones flying the things in the middle of the day in stultifying heat. He began thinking about Dick. His voice, very clear, came back to him. I knew if I stayed where I was, I would be a dead man, so I started walking. Twenty-four hours after his crash, Dick had stumbled back into the camp. But he'd had some chocolate, plenty of water, a map, a compass, and crucially, had known pretty much where he'd crashed. It hadn't done him much good anyway, He'd been shot down again a day later. No one saw it, but he'd been missing for two weeks, and after a few initial jokes, everyone agreed that even Dick couldn't survive in the desert for that long. Joss's canteen was still in the plane. Now the whole cockpit was gently burning, the smell of burnt rubber, paint and oil mingling with the stench of his own burns. Without water, with the loss of blood, he wouldn't last long. He'd been dreaming about being in the belly of a great ship, surging back to England, the pitching and yawing of the boat thrusting him up and down, the roar of the massive pistons drowning out all the other noise, then voices, English voices. So then, still alive. He opened his eyes. Don't worry, mate. You're going to be all right. You take it easy. It was dark in the back of the truck, but there was that smell of metal and oil familiar to all machinery. Lying flat on his back, occasionally jolted as the truck passed over a bump or a stone in the sand, Jost was watched by the two men. They wore British Army tin hats and khaki drill, but the white armbands and red crosses stood out in the dim light. "'You're going to be just fine,' said one of them. "'Get you back to a nice hospital in no time.' Jost murmured. "'What's your plane come down? I saw you charge at that jerry. Death wish, haven't you?' Maybe then, he thought, but now he wasn't so sure. He moved his lips, but the words weren't there. You were only twenty miles behind the southern section of the front line, the other man said. We were looking for a bomber crew but couldn't find them. Saw you instead. Still, you were lucky. Another few miles further south, and you'd have hit the depression. Then you'd have been well and truly fucked. So they're dead, and I'm alive. All the same, said the first medic. Don't reckon you'd have lasted too long where you were on your own. 
Someone's watching out for you, all right. Yes, Joss managed, closed his eyes. <laughs>